Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once a century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's long-time partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift. From how semiconductor shortages in Taiwan influence Japanese military spending, to how a new scramble for rare earth metals is remaking US foreign policy. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, after years of carping from the Remain establishment, Britain has finally come to its senses and joined a big trading bloc. But no, not that one. Will life in Asia's CPTPP allow us to export our famous services economy? And what will we do with all the cheap leggings we get in return? As China leans ever further into an eventual Ukrainian peace, France is looking to broker the brokering. That, at least, seems to be the key motive of President Macron's trip to Beijing. Your local shadow bank has lent out $1.4 trillion. With private equity loaning their way around the banking system, are we all sitting on a powder keg of off-balance sheet ordnance? Or are we just scared of our own shadow dollars? But first... Trade deal or no deal? The Macron uh, visit to Beijing comes on the back of the Chinese introducing their peace deal. Obviously, it was floated before Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow recently and it was subsequently presented to the world. I think it was generally viewed, at least in the West, as being more pro-Russian than pro-Ukrainian, as in it kind of took the Russian view of the conflict for granted. And the Americans tended to dismiss it and say, you know, that's what it is, effectively, we're not that interested. But obviously, the Europeans apparently aren't seeing it that way. Macron is going to visit Beijing to talk about this, now, of course, Macron will not be taking the same line as the Chinese. He'll be he'll be taking a more pro-Ukrainian position. But, you know, ultimately, he's taking it seriously. Prior to this, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has expressed some openness. I mean, he hasn't said anything on the terms of the deal, to my knowledge, but he didn't outright reject it. And he seemed to be interested in... Um, in China having a seat at the table. So I think at this stage, at the very least, what's become clear is China is going to be a major player in brokering this peace. And the other thing that stood out from the reports today was Washington seemed a little out in the cold. I mean, it it it, it didn't say anything particularly positive about the deal or anything like that, but it, it, it almost seemed like the White House didn't actually have much input into what was going on and that this might be... Um, I wouldn't say Europe going solo, but definitely taking taking some responsibility for everything. I And for what it's worth, I think Macron has wanted this opportunity for quite a long time, even since the beginning of the war. Although France have been nominally very supportive and Macron actually put on hoodies and stuff and did photo shoots, I remember, at the beginning of the war to show that he was you know, part of the war and was a war leader or whatever. I think Macron has always been looking 
for an opportunity to insert France in some serious or semi-serious way into the peace negotiations to to bolster France's presence on the world stage. That's partly uh, due to the fact that the French always want to do that. The French do see themselves as an independent power in terms of foreign policy and so on, and have since Charles de Gaulle. But also, um, Macron himself is very focused on uh, France's influence in the world. He always has been since he's become president, and he's always kind of put a lot of effort into trying to raise that. So I I think, I'm, I wouldn't say that the, the Beijing trip is a is a dream come true for Emmanuel Macron, but I think he can certainly see an avenue where he can pursue something that he's been pursuing for a very long time. I agree with that to a certain extent. Uh, first, France and Russia are very long-standing allies. People know that uh, during the Stalinist period in the 1930s, Russia industrialized at a breakneck speed. But what not a lot of people realize is under the final Tsar, uh, Nicholas II, uh, Russia was also industrializing apace. And the French were actually funding that through buying Russian sovereign debt and being involved in the whole industrialization process. Of course, the French and the Russians were part of the Entente before Britain was involved, before the First World War as well. So France has had longstanding relations with Russia that have been better in general than the rest of Europe for perhaps a century now. Furthermore, Macron, since the beginning, has been much more restrained in the language that is used, and he has appeared to be much more pragmatic. However, I would say that in substance, his uh, views on the current conflict on Ukraine don't differ greatly from the Anglo-Saxon bloc, which we might say is the United Kingdom and the in the US. You know, Macron in the run-up to late February 2022 uh, was saying, you know, you must accept that Minsk is dead. You must accept that Ukraine will be part of the Western alliance. And since then, he's been talking about withdrawing troops before negotiations. So I think while Macron's been much more pragmatic, for instance, he's talked about avoiding humiliation. He said that Russia shouldn't be totally defeated. Certainly hasn't been kind of yakking in the way that the British and Americans have from time to time about regime change and breaking up Russia. But I think that's because he views those things as counterproductive to his ends. From what I can see about his trip to China, it might be different behind closed doors, but certainly in public, the effort Macron seems to be making, and certainly von der Leyen seems to be making, from what I can see, is not to begin negotiations of the sort that you might call genuine. I think that's perhaps an unfair word to use, but let's go with it for now. And in real negotiations, you have a give and a take and you meet somewhere in the middle, you have a compromise. But from what I can tell, the message Macron is taking to China is really, look, we want you to rein Russia in. We want you to use your leverage to bring Russia to the table and accept something very close to our terms, our position. Um, that's what von der Leyen said directly. She said that she hoped uh, Beijing would be able to rein in Russia and that the EU is very concerned with China's relationship with Russia. French diplomats as well said that they hoped that China could use its leverage to change Moscow's calculations. So while conceding the fact that things may well be different behind closed doors. I see no daylight, really, between the EU's position and the Anglo-Saxon position, shall we say. Macron's language and style might be different, but I think the substance is similar. We kind of disagree on this, though, right? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a more formal aspect to this. I think the reason that Macron has been toning down the language is precisely for this this reason to do what he's doing now. I mean, that's kind of what I was just saying that France want to pursue an independent foreign policy in a lot of ways. And Macron sees that as a very large component of his presidency. And that's why they've put themselves in this position where they are the ones that will be able to bring the West to the negotiating table. Um, And I think that's what this is. Even if Macron goes over to Beijing and says what you say he's going to say, which he may well do. I I wouldn't be surprised if he did. The whole point is that that's an initial 
that's the initial position of the Western powers. He's just set down the initial position of the Western powers. And China will say, well, X, Y, and Z, and they'll set down the position of the power that they're backing. Remember, both are in, a, in effect proxies here. China more so than France, because China's not involved in arming anyone in the conflict, and France is, which actually, in a sense, gives them an advantage. The Chinese are playing this very well, but they are sort of both there as as proxies, in a sense. And so neither of them have to take as hardline a position, and they can set out the terms. But I think that, or the initial terms anyway, on which negotiations will take place. But I think that the whole key here is always follow the spectacle in diplomacy. It's nice to kind of say, oh, what's really going on, what people are really saying and so on. You know, it's like they say about a job or whatever, that 90% of it's showing up. I mean, it, this is sort of the case in diplomacy. The, the very act of going somewhere and showing an openness to talk to somebody else is in itself a really important act. If Nixon goes to China, we don't remember like what Nixon and Mao were really talking about. It was the symbolism of going to China. So I think France going there is them sticking their oar in and saying, look, this we're going to be one of the key brokers here in the Western world. And we have recognized that the Chinese are going to be the main player on the other side, i.e., the main player who's not directly involved in the conflict. In addition to that, I don't think the French are very savvy diplomats, and I don't think that they think that they're going over to Taiwan, to or not to Taiwan, to China, to bark orders at the Chinese. I don't think they live under that illusion at all. I think if, if they went over and genuinely took an arrogant stance which, which started bossing the Chinese around and saying, you rein them in or X, Y, and Z is going to happen. I think they know they'd be laughed out of the room because what would the Chinese say to them? If the Americans went over and did that, it may, may not get anywhere, but the Chinese would say, oh, okay. If the French went over, the Chinese would just laugh at them. They'd say, you're France. I mean, France isn't an unimportant country, but it's not a big power player. So why would why would France be able to go over and boss them around? I I assume that that the French diplomats, civil servants, and Macron himself, who seems like an intelligent guy, understands that. So I think it's a, a first salvo in peace talks, and it's definitely showing who some of the key players are going to be. Well, I certainly agree with your position that China is a incredibly important player within this whole process of finding peace and ending the conflict. It's really in a tremendously powerful position now. On the one hand, if it really put the squeeze on Russia and Russia faced diplomatic isolation uh, from China, then that would put Russia in an extremely difficult position indeed, and it might in, in fact force Russia to the negotiating table. Equally, I think if China armed and supported Russia to half the extent that NATO has Ukraine, it would be absolutely decisive in the conflict, and that would be the end of it. It would be an absolute Russian victory. So China is indeed, uh, or does indeed, find itself in a position of great leverage in this, and it, it can really decide how this goes one way or the other. Of course, there are risks involved in that as well, given the likely reaction from the US uh, if it faced a humiliation of defeat, which it might well still. The second point is that I agree with you about Macron's foreign policy. I I find Macron eminently dislikable, very, very easy to dislike. And I suspect that if you sat us down and started listing uh, preferred domestic policies, then Monsieur Macron and I would agree on only a little. However, I think he is the clearest eyed of all foreign, uh, of all leaders in Europe, Macron has the clearest eyed vision of his nation's national, his nation's self-interest, goals that he would like his nation to achieve, realistic ones that are drawn from an objective view of his nation's weaknesses and strengths, and the strategy to get there. And Macron had hoped, in fact, to foster greater unity within the European Union, especially within the sphere of foreign affairs and military affairs, of course. He had hoped, I think, to use Europe as a vehicle to extend France's power to ex uh, achieve some of its strategic goals. And it's a very clever way of going about things that harks back, harkens back to 
de Gaulle's initial ideas of making Europe a kind of a third pole within the world during the Cold War. So on all of these things, I agree with you. I just think at present, Europe is determined at the moment, at least. Things might change by the end of summer. But certainly at the moment, I think Europe is determined to bring Russia to the table. But if not on Europe's terms, then very close to them. And one of the things that I found extremely surprising about this is that the very powerful German Federation of Businesses, uh, obviously Germany's a manufacturing and industrial powerhouse, and it's Federation of Businesses and a very important lobbying group. You would have thought that the German Federation of Businesses would be the most in favor of maintaining strong ties with China and not letting geostrategic disputes or the friendships or alliances that China might make get in the way of that. But in fact, about Mr. Macron and Ms. von der Leyen's visit to China, the German Federation of Businesses released a statement. It said, in view of China's position as a rising superpower, the country must stand up to Russia with its stance in Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. China has lost a lot of trust in Germany and Europe. German industry expects Ursula von der Leyen and Emmanuel Macron to insist on Chinese, the Chinese leadership's reliability. And then it concluded after all of that by saying that although it was very much in favor of the EU-China investment agreement signed in 2020 to, to great fanfare, much to Washington's chagrin, at the time we thought that this was a sign that Europe was finally found, finding its feet uh, as a strategic power in its own right. It signed this pretty serious, pretty consequential EU-China investment agreement. The German Federation of Businesses said, although it was very much in favor of that, the whole thing needs to be reassessed in light of China's friendship to Russia. So at the moment, I agree that these might be the opening salvos. But goodness, it sounds to me that Europe has a long way to go before it's talking about any genuine compromise. Yeah, I mean, what can you even say about that? Europe doesn't have any leverage over the Chinese, okay, at all. I mean, America may, maybe, America may in terms of trade, although we've talked about it before, China has far more leverage over America economically than America has over China, and that's just a fact. Europe, how much leverage do they have over China? Nothing. They have nothing. They have no leverage over China. If some of them don't, if some people in Europe don't understand that, they need to understand it immediately. But, you know, I think it's pretty obvious. I can't imagine that people involved in this stuff don't understand that. Look, you alluded to the fact that Macron has um, always seen, or the French have always seen uh, Europe as a kind of leveraging point for them to pursue the kind of foreign affairs and military arm. And that's exactly what they've always viewed. Europe as. Germany, on the other hand, has always viewed itself as the economic base of Europe. Um, and those two forces kind of kind of have shaped Europe in a way. And and they remain they remain the case to today. Now what's happened in the last, what will we call it, six months? Olaf Scholz has gone to Beijing to talk about the economy. And now Emmanuel Macron is going to talk about foreign affairs and military stability in Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, to me, the writing is on the wall here. I don't know what German manufacturers open letters they're signing or whatever it is, but it looks to me like the writing is on the wall. The Germans are going over and courting the Chinese for economic outreach. And wherever these talks go or how slow they are to start or anything like that, Macron is over there to, to say to the Chinese, we take you seriously on the foreign stage. This is Europe gearing up for the multipolar world. That's my that's my reading of it. And I, I think almost that bigger reading of it is a lot more important than the specifics of what happens in Ukraine, which neither of us can really guess at. There will be peace eventually because all wars end, right? No war goes on forever. But um, how it shakes out, I think, is almost less important than the process through which it shakes out. And the French visit to China is part of that process. It's part of a reshaping of global relations and so on. That Ukraine is catalyzing, it's driving this stuff happening. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter the outcome in Ukraine. I'm, I'm not saying that from a really cynical point of view, obviously, in a lot of ways, what happens in Ukraine, the borders that are drawn there and so on do matter. But they don't matter as much as the process by which that's all shaken out. Yeah, I agree with that a lot. We are moving into a multipolar world. 
I think there are going to be two main prime superpowers, if you like, within this multipolar world. But still, then there'll be two kind of smaller and weaker great powers for various reasons. Russia, because its economy is smaller than the US and China's, of course. And Europe, because although it's an economy that's comparable in size to China and the US, of course, it's it's not a single unified centralized state. Therefore, we are going to have a multipolar world, likely with each of the two superpowers having a great power each as a a kind of a junior partner, but still a great power in its own right. So these processes are going to be very interesting. There might well be repeated attempts to try to put distance, to try to put some air between the senior power and the junior power within each side of this conflict. And certainly if, if China could nudge Europe toward economic neutrality in any conflict in the Western Pacific, if China could, I mean, Europe has very little militarily that it can contribute to any such conflict. But if China could get it to kind of make clear that it's going to opt out of any economic sanctions that the US might want to impose on China, then that would be a very big deal indeed. Beijing bargain. The United Kingdom has reached an agreement to join the to give it its full name instead of that mouthful of an acronym, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. Now, this is a it, it's quite a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement between Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. So basically, it's all countries around the Pacific Rim, either on the eastern side in North and South America, or on the western side in um, Southeast Asia and Oceania. It is a very rapidly growing area of the world. The economic gears of this region are revved to a much higher rate than in Europe, and perhaps even in North America to a certain degree these days as well. And it's been a key plank of the United Kingdom government's strategy for the post-Brexit world to sign free trade agreements, and especially in Southeast Asia and in South Asia, where economic growth is much higher, and Britain actually has a very small amount of trade. It's generally been the view that this would play to Britain's advantages the European single market, which is the largest and deepest and most comprehensive free trade zone in the world, never really got services right. There are four planks, four pillars to the European Union single market. Freedom of movement of people, freedom of movement of capital, freedom of movement of goods, and freedom of movement of services. It had the th- first three right, but it never really got true freedom of movement of services or anywhere close to it. So I think the general British view here is that they can join this very uh, fast, uh, high GDP growth economic block. They can get cheaper goods from places like Vietnam and Mexico and uh, Chile and Singapore. And at the same time, they can sell their services, especially financial services, into a region that's very rapidly growing, has rapidly increasing trade, and therefore is likely to need financial services. That's the plan anyway. And I think it's a pretty big deal in terms of trade because not only does this offer Britain something, but Britain itself is a largest economy. It's one of the, depending on how you measure the size of GDPs, whether it's by purchasing power parity or whether it's by nominal GDP, Britain is one of the top seven economies in the world. So Britain joining this trading bloc really adds a lot of heft to its power within the world. The reports on this have been a little bit pessimistic. Um, The government estimates said that in the long term, this will only increase British GDP by 0.08%. So that's a rounding error. Now, some people have said these estimates are a little off. There's definitely a political element to the criticisms of the CPTPP because Britain can't get anything right after Brexit. That said, 
how much can that estimate really be off? Even if it's off four or five times, this isn't a great deal of GDP that's being added. That's the first point to make. The second point to make is it doesn't seem terrible. The estimates don't seem out of this world unreasonable because of all the countries in this trade deal, none of them fall into Britain's top 10 trade partners. And only one, Japan, falls into the top 15. The only two countries in that region of the world that stand out in terms of in terms of countries that do serious trade with Britain are China and Hong Kong. And obviously at this stage, Hong Kong is pretty much part of China. Every estimate that I can see, and even taking them not at face value, suggests that this is very minor. I kind of wonder what what is being open to trade here. I mean, like Vietnam exports a lot of uh, clothing, for example, but we already have that here in the UK. Does does it mean that the price of that falls by whatever the tariffs on it are? If there are tariffs, what's that? Ten percent, ten percent of Primark jumpers, maybe Zara jumpers. I, I don't know. The other the other issue is um, Britain's always pursuing trade deals. Now I'm not against trade deals. We talk about trade deals a lot on the podcast. It's very important. Global trade is very important. But um, Britain's been pursuing trade deals, especially free trade deals, for a very long time now. And it's always struck me that it's some sort of a kind of Victorian imperial era mindset that free trade is always good for Britain. Free trade was historically very good for Britain within the confines of the British Empire. And there are very specific reasons for that. But ever since 1945, increased trade with the rest of the world, especially free trade, no fetters, free trade, has only increased British indebtedness and their, and trade deficits, which are now at record highs. So even if we say, okay, well, maybe this free trade deal will bring down the prices of Zara dresses because Vietnamese clothing exports to Britain will fall, well, that just means, you know, if more of them are imported, that means more trade deficit. Um I guess, as you say, we could be selling services to these countries. Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I, I think there's already a lot of British finance in that area. A lot of it used to be run out of Hong Kong, HSBC and so on. I'm always open-minded about this stuff. We kind of preach increased engagement and so on. But yeah, it just all the numbers and everything look pretty underwhelming on this one. My personal views on trade are fairly similar to yours. My view is that the way that Britain has engaged in free trade has been, to be kind, misguided, shall we say. I think that there is a cohort within the Conservative Party, certainly since 1980, but probably since the early 70s, which has seen free trade as a good in and of itself, or even an end in and of itself, that a free trade world is just the end goal of international relations. It's a good in, in and of itself. And in fact, it's been become, within the British Conservative Party, I would say, something of a shibboleth in the same way that it was within the Reaganite, or it perhaps still is, within the Reaganite wing of the Republican Party. If you listen to people like Marco Rubio, but certainly if you listen to them about five or ten years ago, and Jeb Bush, I'm sure they would all have been pro-free trade and kind of Reaganite libertarian wing Republican talking heads like, you know, Ben Shapiro also very much in free trade. And so it's really become a kind of a sacred cow among that ring of the Conservative Party. And then of course you've also got the Labour Party in Britain, who since Tony Blair have also been in favor of increased globalization and increased global interaction. In fact, that wing of the Labour Party, which of course is now dominant with Labour Party leader uh, Sakia Starmer, that wing thinks it's ridiculous to even try to hold back the tide against uh, free trade because that's just the way the world is going to be. It's going to have increased globalization. So you're right that Britain has tended to constantly seek greater free trade. The big step toward free trade, of course, was or the two big steps in the last 50 years were joining the uh, European community as it then was in the early 1970s, which is essentially a customs union. 
uh, and a kind of a reduced tariff zone. And then, of course, the creation of the European Union's single market, which actually the Conservative government at the time was very heavily involved in. The difference now between the Conservative Party and Labour Party really is only that Labour wants to do free trade within the single market, and the Conservative Party wants Britain to do free trade globally. And I think this is the real problem, and this is why a lot of the British elite, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a kind of a populist podcast, but it's difficult to find another word to describe that group of people that encompasses the majority of parliamentarians, the majority of uh, media figures, think tankers, NGOs, etc., uh, academics. They all wanted to remain within the EU. And I think one of the reasons why uh, Britain joining the uh, CPTPP has upset so many of them and caused so much derision is that it's going to make it more difficult to re-enter the single market for Britain now. And I think this is an important strategic point, to re-enter the single market, to negotiate a closer integration with Europe, which probably an incoming government, a Labour government would want to do, and certainly most of the elites of Britain would want to do. It's going to make it harder now that we're in a kind of a competing trading block. One thing I would say, though, is the other thing is that Britain has joined this and China is the next application to join the CPTPP. So China's application will be considered next. That's going to be very difficult, of course, because there are lots of issues with China, especially on free trade and some of China's restrictive trade practices. But already this group in terms of trade is going to be very powerful. And that might be a threat. You know, One of the whole ideas of the European Union in the single market is that by creating this large and very powerful economic block, they, they could become a regulatory superpower for the world. Now, one of the things that we saw this with was, for instance, cookies on websites. For the last few years, you've had a little box that pops up that asks you to accept or reject the fact that the, the website in question is going to use cookies. Now, this is an EU matter. The same with mobile phones and only having one ch type of charging port on mobile phones. And what the EU hopes is that by being a regulatory superpower, it can really set standards around the world because the EU will be such a huge market, it, it wouldn't be worth companies having a different standard for the EU and other markets, so they'll just stick to EU standards. And by setting those standards, the EU can set them to its own benefit and the benefit of its own companies. But if we've now got Rival trading blocks. I mean, China is a huge market. The US is a huge market. The EU is a huge market. If then we also have a, a very large market of kind of, even if it's just a large market of middle powers like Japan, the UK, South Korea, Canada, uh, Chile, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, even if it's only the Australia, even if it's only these countries, that's a fair amount of heft as well. So not just the, the, the kind of the scale of the economic boost, which I suspect will get bigger over time as uh, as this region grows at a much faster rate over the eu that's going to you know if that region grows at say three and a half or four percent a year and the eu grows at like 0.8 percent that's going to compound as a difference very quickly but i don't think it's just that i think it's that strategic matter as well if china joined the cptpp everything changes right right now china is britain's fifth largest trade partner but that if it is allowed to go on it'll increase. It, it, it'll probably end up as the biggest trade partner or the second biggest within a decade or two decades. I, I don't know. I haven't done the modeling, but it's probably something along those lines. The other interesting thing about Chinese trade in Britain is Britain does run a trade deficit with China. It runs a trade deficit with an awful lot of countries. But that trade deficit recently has been closing. The Chinese exports have been growing less fast than the British exports to China. So it's actually, I think I did the modeling and it, it, it said that um, by 2030 on current trajectory, Britain will be running a trade surplus with China. So if China enters the CPTPP, then that's a real game changer. But that's speculative. You said there are issues with it. Also, the big question I think to be raised that we'll have to put to the side at the moment is obviously America's putting Britain under a lot of pressure not to be friends with China in a sense. Um, that hasn't gone as far as not to do trade with them, but it's perfectly it's perfectly reasonable to think that's the direction of travel. So the really interesting question there, especially since you raise 
the EU and how Britain has left one trading bloc and now it's joining this other one, which will then not really allow or make it very difficult for Britain to rejoin the EU. If the CPTPP ends up looking something like it does now and doesn't change that much, and if the European Union continues its direction of travel, which has been laid out by the Germans and so on, that that they're open to doing business with China, and if business with China becomes more difficult for the UK, the UK will have effectively traded a very insubstantial trade policy. I take your point that this that these countries could grow, but I think there are limits on that due to many issues. I, I really would be surprised if those numbers were off by magnitudes of 20, those numbers that were published of 0.08 addition to GDP, which they'd need to be off by a factor of 20 for this to be a big deal. So if that's the case, Britain will have effectively traded this small trade deal for inclusion in a unit that will be actually doing big business with China in the future. And if we see that and we look back in 10 years and the Chinese European trade are chugging forward and the CPTPP, maybe these countries grow a little bit, maybe they get a little bit more than, Britain gets a little bit more than 0.08% GDP from it. But ultimately, who will have made the good bet there? I think it'll probably be the Europeans. I think in that scenario, it would definitely be the Europeans. Just to get back to a couple of your points, though, first of all, the British Conservative Party's vision for post-Brexit Britain never struck me as making the slightest little bit of sense. It seemed to me that what they wanted to do was leave uh, the deepest and largest trading bloc in the world so that they could do more free trade, which sounds ridiculous. Like you're leaving the the biggest and, and most comprehensive free trade zone in the world, like certainly for goods, almost 100% seamless, like almost like a single country because you wanted to do more free trade. That sounds really strange to me as a, as a, as a plan. The other point is I think what the conservatives or certainly the, the, the majority of the conservative party would really like to do is declare unilateral free trade. That was one of their big ideas. They were influenced by a, a, an economic think tank called Economists for Free Trade, who produced a project to declare unilateral free trade. So just to lower the tariff barriers and lo- lower a lot of the non-tariff barriers to trade with Britain, and by doing that, you know, grow the economy somehow. I I thought that was always a non-starter. I thought it was always ridiculous that it would never work. And I thought that the general conservative view was self-contradictory. But we are where we are. The second point I would say is that if it does work out in the way that you said, that Europe does an increasing amount of trade with China, Europe gets closer and closer to China, then in that situation, Britain would have had a terrible deal, a, a really awful deal. They would have been led up the garden path. I'm not altogether certain that that'll work out that way. It is Washington's worst nightmare, not just the neocon worst nightmare, not just the kind of Biden administration worst nightmare, not the worst nightmare given the geopolitical arrangement at the moment with the reemergence of Russia onto the great power table and, and increasingly showing its muscle. It is the greatest nightmare of America, full stop, for America's interests, for a single trading block, a single powerful unit to emerge across the entirety of the Eurasian landmass. If you start linking up Chinese Chinese manufacturing and R&D and technological expertise with Russian national natural resources and, uh, and German high-value-added goods and engineering, if you link that up into one cohesive trading block with you know, Belt and Road and 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 Middle and uh, and and Middle Route and and, and North South Corridor links across the Eurasian landmass that the U.S. Navy cannot touch. It's the end of U.S. primacy. It's just the end because what will happen then is the U.S. will essentially become a kind of an island of the central mass of the world, and it, it'll end up being a terms taker. 
I don't think the US will. I mean, if you think that it's been able to create chaos and havoc in the Middle East, if you think it's been able to create chaos and havoc in Europe's eastern approaches over the last 30 years, wait until you see what it does if that sort of thing comes to fruition. It looks as if it even might be coming to fruition. So I think increased links between Europe and China will be a fraught process, to say the least. Yeah, if history's taught us one thing, it's if the economic direction of travel is moving in one way, you can't stop it. Britain got very aggressive in Suez when its power was waning, and sorry. The economy trumps these things, in my opinion. I'm not saying that a big Eurasian landmass you know, superpower is going to emerge, but you cannot stop these forces, not with submarines, not with aircraft. I, I just don't think the world works like that. Cast no shadow. One of the things that you've drawn attention to this week in your writings, Philip, is the issue with shadow banking. Yeah, so this um, this was brought on the radar by a very good article for the Financial Times by Rana Furahar, who's the editor there, I believe. Um, she writes some very good stuff. Um, multipolar curious, I, I think, although I don't want to put words in her mouth. Um, she, she, she wrote an article called Shadow Banks Could Yet Cause Trouble. Now, first things first, I hate the term shadow banks. It, it kind of came into parlance in 2007, 2008, and it sounds very sinister. I mean, it really has this sinister sound about it. I mean, Whether it's not where Sauron pays his wages, right? The the shadow bank. I mean, it can even refer to things like repo arrangements, right? Like shadow banking. It's uh, it's a it's a varied thing, isn't it? Yeah, or a hedge fund extending credit to a small company or even to a startup. There is a key point here that is this sector is not regulated like the banking sector, and so it is a little bit more opaque. The issues that uh, Furahara raised in her article were about, she wasn't very precise, but I think she's really concerned about the, the real estate sector as it relates to private equity. Now, this is something I've I've been watching for quite some time. Um, the private equity world, maybe we should just explain briefly what private equity is. Private equity is, is basically companies that take on investment capital, and then they deploy that uh, investment capital into uh, companies that are not offered for sale on public markets like stock exchanges. And they buy the equity of those companies. Sometimes they don't buy all of it. Sometimes they buy all of it. And they take those companies onto their balance sheet. Sometimes they manage them actively. Sometimes they don't. But the point is that the, that the company is bought it's owned by the investors but it's privately held i.e it's not publicly traded on a stock exchange private equity have been getting very very involved in the real estate sector this cycle there's a few reasons for that the two that stand out most at the top of the list is returns have been very not well returns haven't been very poor this cycle but it's been hard to get um coupons in a sense the interest rate has been very low funds have been pushed into more and more exotic locales and institutional funds like pension funds and so on are able to get access to the real estate market through through the private private equity vehicles the other thing that's driving this although i i think it's often exaggerated is due to regulations and so on banks haven't been able to issue the kind of mortgage issuance they did in the run-up to 2008 they also probably haven't been able to loan as much to real estate developers and so on because of the regulations and so then that uh, that allows another player to step into the market anyway whatever the reason private equity has got very involved in the real estate market and the concern here is obviously that real estate is a very cyclical investment house prices are coming down in many countries the uk the us and so on and when these house prices come down if we see some sort of a repeat of 2008 maybe not as bad a crash but if we do see 30 percent 40 percent decline in home values or even less there could be major stresses on this quote-unquote shadow banking sector and it will be very interesting to see what comes of that. Right. I was looking at some of the figures that you kind of produced on this. And one of the things that you said is that the shadow banking or private credit specifically. So private equity, as you said, is taking shares in businesses which are not listed on stock exchanges. They're privately owned businesses. And then the private equity fund take buys that business and either takes it under management or just adds it to the balance sheet and lets other people manage it. Private credit specifically, though, 
is the extension, as far as I understand, the extension of debt, basically, uh, giving giving companies loans, but not publicly traded debt. So in the same way that shares are are publicly traded on stock markets, bonds are essentially debt, which is publicly traded on bond markets or fixed income markets sometimes. So what private credit does is the same as private equity, but with debt instead. And you mentioned that the, that the size of that industry is actually mushroomed, ballooned, snowballed up to 1.4 trillion, which kind of took my breath away because it, it seems to me to be a, a relatively new wrinkle on the private equity business. I mean, I know that Warren Buffett in the past has, has kind of extended loans to certain businesses, but um, you know, for it to go to uh, for that industry to go up to you know 1.4 trillion seems shocking. But I did a little bit of research, and there are actually six banks in the U.S. which have assets that are more than 1.4 trillion in aggregate. And in fact, there are two banks in the U.S. Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan Chase, which have assets more than twice that size, just individual banks, more than twice. So how big is this really? I mean, if this went kaplunk, I mean, for instance, I think you've written and spoken on this podcast very persuasively, arguing that the housing market in probably Europe and the US is really in a lot of trouble, and we're likely to see some sort of crash, perhaps not as precipitous and calamitous as in 2008, but some sort of crash nonetheless, not just a a gentle downturn. If that happened and these private credit companies started to get into trouble, first of all, is that size 1.4 trillion? Does that get us into like serious systemic risks territory? And secondly, what would be the mechanism of this transferring through to the wider financial sector and thence to the real economy? Right. So private credit is a very different beast to private equity. You hear a lot of bad things said about private equity. I'm actually relatively sympathetic to the private equity model. That doesn't mean that private equity is always used well. Sometimes people use it for vulture activity to go in and asset strip companies. In fact, that's kind of where the history of private equity comes from, and it's why it's got a bad name in some quarters. So private equity as a vehicle should be detached from actually existing private equity at some point in time. It's just a structure for holding things. Private credit's very different because Classically, I mean, not to go into it too much, but kind of classic economics, pre-modern economics in a sense, and also Islamic finance, which is the kind of only surviving modern version of that in a functional sense, always was suspicious of lending. And it was always in favor of equity shares. And why is that? Because, Because the incentive structures that are set up. If you own equity in a company, if you and I go into business and we both own equity in a company, we both want the company to do well because the way that we get paid is through our equity, either because it increases in value or because we get dividends. So the incentive structure is there very clear. We want our company to grow and do well. Creditors are different. Creditors have a wholly different motive. The creditor's motive is to get paid. And if I, if you have your company and you own equity in it, but you've taken out debt with me and you owe me money, I may not care about the business doing well. I just want my money back, right? So credit has always been a very, very different and slightly more insidious uh, mechanism in financial markets. I'm not railing against credit here. I'm not a true believer in Islamic finance. But I do see that they have a point. They are fundamentally different structures. And you have to be careful with credit in ways that you don't have to be as careful with equity. So that speaks to private credit. Um, It's a very, very opaque industry. A friend of mine, Dan Rasmussen, has done a lot of work on private equity and private credit. He's very skeptical of private equity as well. But he thinks that, and he's written about it, he says that private credit is just a way to get money to lend to businesses that otherwise wouldn't meet banks' lending standards. Okay, And if that is true then this is just credit relationships that are getting around transparency and regulation, which should 
put off a bit of an alarm. Again, the difference with private equity is there are actually good reasons for private equity. I won't go into them now, but there are. It's not just about opacity. It's about ownership structure. Whereas in private credit, if it is true that this is just about opacity, then we could be building up some pretty significant problems here. I I was saying on Twitter that we should think about this logically. Why would I mean, the size of the industry now, I think you just said, is $1.4 trillion. That's a very large industry. Why does the economy require $1.4 trillion in lending that it can't get from the banks when credit standards have been pretty lax and easy money's been flowing for the past decades? The only reason I can come up with is because the banks are regulated in such a way that it won't extend the credit to these entities. So all of that kind of builds up to be very concerning. I mean, especially the fact that the industry has completely gone mental. I think it's tripled since 2017 or something like that. I think it was $500 billion back then. So that's enormous runaway growth. The question for what you were talking about, the stability of the banking system and so on, It's a two-step question. Number one, who are the private credit guys lending to? Now, I think a lot of the lending is going to private equity firms, but that uh, that doesn't really help matters. (laughs) That's uh, that's that's covering one opaque instrument with another opaque instrument because we don't really know what any of these people are doing. I mean, we do to some extent, but not in the same way that regulators have oversights over banks and so on. So if the answer, and I think it probably is, is private credit is loaning mainly to private equity, then it's it's very opaque what's going on. So the, the first question is, what are these loans going to fund? I suspect we'll only find that out if there's a collapse. I think this is Warren Buffett's old phrase that when the tide goes out, you'll know who's swimming naked. I I don't think we're going to know who's swimming naked or who the private credit industry has been loaning to unless the tide goes out and these loans start to go sour. And then that speaks to the second part of your question, which is how will it impact the financial system? Absolutely no clue. We, do, we don't know because we don't know what these lending relations are. It's a big, in this sense, shadow banking is a good term. It's it's part of the banking sector, i.e. it seems to be extending credit, but it's it's completely dark. We don't really know what's going in there, going on there. Now, we don't know the connections. For example, let's say that all of the lending is going to private equity firms. Let's say that an awful lot of those private equity firms are construction and real estate firms, for example. If those loans go sour, the private credit vehicle comes under extreme pressure. The private equity vehicle also comes under extreme pressure. And that private equity vehicle may be on a pension balance sheet. Pension funds might be invested in that private equity um, uh, vehicle. So, uh, and, and then there could also, private equity uh, vehicles do take on bank lending, right? I mean, the typical structure of a private equity firm is leverage. They usually go in, they take on, they, they buy companies, and then they take on leverage on those companies. So, the whole thing is a, is a, is a big uh, uh, mass of lending. It's all pretty opaque as far as I can tell. And yeah, I don't think we'll, we'll know the outcome until the tide goes out, if the tide goes out, except for the fact that I think this thing's tripled in in size in six years, and $1.4 trillion is a lot of money. That is a meaningful chunk in the in even in the giant finance, global finance industry. We are fresh from a huge victory.